Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 293, and today's guest is Eric Gasfriend, CEO and co-founder of Dynamic Care Health. It is hard enough to build a startup in a heavily regulated industry like healthcare, but what do you do when your biggest competitor, who is publicly traded, files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection? It can be either really, really discouraging or it can be an opportunity. In the case of Dynamic Care Health, it is hopefully an opportunity. An opportunity to build a world-class company that is helping to improve the lives of millions of people that are dealing with an addiction to drugs, opioids, alcohol, or tobacco. Dynamic Care Health was founded in 2016 by Eric and his father, Dr. David Gasfriend, who is an international expert in addiction psychiatry. As a digital therapeutics and coaching company, they are using a pre-existing yet a previously underutilized treatment called contingency management that rewards members for certain behaviors. Their solution combines this method along with the usage of a tech platform and a certified recovery coach to help people with recovery and it's working. The company was recently granted a breakthrough device designation from the FDA for one of its products, a prescription-only digital therapeutic that treats AUD or alcohol use disorder, which ultimately affects 29 million Americans per year. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like getting press for your startup and the pros and cons of using PR firms or just doing it yourself. Eric's background story, and what he learned at the early stages of his career while running a startup called Happy Cloud as its GM, why he went back to business school at HBS, where he also studied AI and machine learning, all the details about Dynamic Care Health in terms of how their platform works and how they are helping its members with recovery, the complexity of the healthcare system, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you may wanna add a VentureFizz subscription. It is our employment branding and hiring solution that helps to keep your company top of mind for our targeted audience of professionals in the tech industry. A VentureFizz subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to all of our exclusive employment branding content, and so much more. Send an email to info at VentureFizz.com for all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Eric. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Keith. I'm excited to talk to you because um, you know you're you're an entrepreneur. You're working on a very meaningful company that uh, affects a lot of people, and we're going to talk about those numbers. And you know, it's probably rare to find somebody who isn't you know close to someone, whether it's friends or family, that's dealing with uh, you know something that you're. Uh, your company's helping to hopefully overcome. So we'll get into the details of that. But um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was I get a lot of inbound from PR firms that are pitching the founder for the VentureFist podcast, which is great. And I get lots of great intros through that channel. But you had actually reached out direct. And I thought that was interesting because um, I've heard of other other founders that take the you know the, the relationship with media press whatever the case may be as that's that's my job right i i need to own that and i've heard you know from other entrepreneurs like you know you got to build relationships and it takes time and all these things or you could go the alternative path and hire a pr firm that already has all those relationships but obviously there's uh, pros and cons of that in terms of expense or whatever the case may be. So I want to get your perspective for entrepreneurs that are trying to get more, you know, publicity out there about their company or product and, you know, the path that you chose and why. 
Sure. And I'll mention just in terms of my credibility, we've gotten a lot of great PR for Dynamic Care. We've been on the front page of the Boston Globe and covered New York Times, CBS News, Washington Post, um, et cetera. So um, I've done it both ways. I've used uh, PR firms and I've done it myself. Um, I think it is very good for entrepreneurs to at least understand how PR works, what PR firms do, and how to do it themselves if they ever end up doing it themselves. Um, the It's great to work with a PR firm. Um, they add a lot of value. They have connections with journalists. They understand the whole process of what is a newsworthy story versus what isn't. This is an issue a lot of entrepreneurs have because obviously we are infatuated with our own companies and ideas and that's why we spend a million hours a week working on it, but not everyone in the world is the same way about our companies as we do. That is true, yeah, sadly. Um, sadly, yeah, yeah. It can be hard for the entrepreneur to judge what is a, a newsworthy uh, achievement, you know, because every achievement you make feels newsworthy to you, um, yeah. but not always like that to the rest of the world. So um, that is, you know, First thing that they help with then crafting the press release, writing it properly. Um, and this matters to some extent. If the story is good enough, then even if it's a poorly written press release, it will still get picked up. Um, but, um, and, and there is kind of an art to doing the press release. But I think one of the really important things is you, you have actually a lot of control over the story when you write the press release, um, because a lot of journalists will basically just paraphrase the press release when they write an article about it. And I didn't really understand that when I started, I thought journalists will do a lot of research and um, kind of like, you know, in the investigative journalism mindset, like right. they figure it out themselves <laughs> and write everything themselves. And yeah. I realized like after the first few months, I was like, oh, wow, like things that I wrote in the press release end up in the actual articles, just maybe rephrased. Um, and so I have a lot of kind of control over how I shape the story. Um, and so PR firms are great with that. Um, and then there's a lot of legwork that goes into researching who to pitch the article to um, and, um, you know, reaching out to all those journalists um, and being persistent about it, too. I've had situations where when I've been doing the PR myself, where I sent a uh, journalist an email with the press release, didn't respond, sent another email again, two days later, didn't get a response. Then at the end of the week, called him up on the phone. He picked up, I talked to him. He's like, oh, that's really interesting. I didn't see that in my inbox, but I'll definitely do a story on it. And then he wrote a story about it. So that wouldn't have happened if I didn't just pick up the phone and do the cold call. And yep. you know, depending on the entrepreneur, some entrepreneurs are not as comfortable doing cold calls as others. It's definitely not the most fun part of the job, but um, can be very valuable. So, you know, PR firms, they can do this work. They're very good at it, but PR firms are expensive too. And so sometimes like if I have a really major piece of news, then I'll use a PR firm. If it's a more minor piece of news, I'll do it myself. Um, and sometimes I'll kind of like go back and forth and alternate. Um, and it's definitely been a good learning experience, skill building experience for me, learning from the PR firm, what is the work that they're doing? How does it work? Um, and so that I can, you know, eventually take the reins and do it myself. 
Got it. Well, that's good good feedback to kind of hear both sides of the equation and pros and cons and when you may want to do it one way versus the other. So, all right, well, well, let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up and what were you like as a child? I grew up in beautiful Newton, Massachusetts. Um, and uh, I, as a child, it's a suburb of Boston, for those who don't know. Um, as a child, I was um, somewhat introverted, um, very into computers. So kind of like nerdy computer video game kid. Um, started, uh, probably started using computers when I was two. My dad had an old Apple. He was an early adopter. And, um, and I was born in 87. So just give you a sense. Um, and then I started learning how to code computers when I was seven. Um, so started early on that too and got, um, coding basic. Really? Yes. Yes. Okay. Basic Q basic. Um, and uh, then you know, in high school, they had these like uh, TI-87, TI-89 graphing calculators, and they had like a version of BASIC that came with them. Um, and so I made um, my, at first I started modifying calculator games that were kind of like going around the school, um, and then started making my own calculator games. And, you know, they spread around in my high school. I don't know if they ever made it any further than that. Cause you have to like link it with like the little cable from one phone to another, spread it, um, one copy at a time. Um, that was fun. But at some point I realized that, um, I like building new stuff with code, but I didn't have the patience to debug it. <laughs> mm, <laughs> and when I it. found out that real software engineers spend most of their time debugging, I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, so that's when I got more interested in the business side of tech and what led me down the tech route. I think, um, you know, among my nerdy friend group in high school, I was often kind of the most like kind of socially astute um, and as basically like the cool kid among the non-cool kids you know what I mean <laughs> so it's it, yeah. kind of like right at that like interface between the nerds and the cool kids and um I mean in, in some ways that's still where I am you know as like entrepreneur and CEO of a tech company um I am the public face of my company where we have a bunch of engineers and operations people who are more introverted and nerdy and like doing um, kind of the technical work and don't necessarily want to be the one like out there um, interacting with everyone else. But, um, you know, I can do the out there interacting and also understand all the technical stuff. Got it. Okay. So you studied international relations at Brown. Mm -hmm. What did you do after school? So I knew in college I wanted to do tech entrepreneurship and I was working on a few different ideas. I had a mentor who was a serial entrepreneur and um, he was helping me with my startup ideas. And he asked me um, as I was graduating, Eric, how old are you? I was like 22. He's like, I ran a company when I was your age. You could do it too. And he offered me um, to take the role as general manager of one of his um, relatively young startups um, that was called Happy Cloud. It was doing um, cloud gaming technology for the video game industry. So taking games that would take hours and hours to download 
making it so you can play the game while it's downloading. So you don't have to wait to get into the game. Um, and this and is so, 2010. It, so like it was a different mm-hmm. world and experience of, you know, cloud or anything. It was like you're downloading the game to your console. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. And um, it was, you know, I, I realized, you know, I, I wanted to do my own startup, but I could learn so much more by being kind of an apprentice to an experienced serial entrepreneur. And so that was a really great experience for me to learn everything from just basic stuff of how you hire people, how you fire people, how do you run payroll, um, to much more strategic stuff about um, how do you approach fundraising and business strategy and um, business development, et cetera. So it was a great, great learning experience for me. And I did that for three years and then um, went did my MBA at Harvard Business School. Um, and after that started Dynamicare Health, um, which is the company I'm running now doing digital therapeutics for addiction, drugs, alcohol, and tobacco. Well, so with Happy Cloud, like there was like a lot of lessons learned, it seems like, because you did a pivot from direct to consumer, then it went more B2B licensing and there was yeah free to play games from Warner Brothers. So, you know, so so this experience, you know, you raised capital from Avalon. So, I mean, th- there was a lot of lessons learned, like talk about, you know, even before going back to business school, getting your startup MBA from Happy Cloud. Sure. Yeah. I'll talk about me two lessons I learned at Happy Cloud. So one that you mentioned is when I joined as general manager, the founder had been planning to do a direct consumer business model where we would run an online PC video game store. So you can come to thehappycloud.com and buy a video game. And instead of waiting hours and hours for it to download, you would get it almost instantly because you can play the game while it's downloading. And um, that was an interesting idea, but it didn't really work as a business model for a few reasons. One is we had to license the games from the publishers to build up a catalog of games. And that took a lot of effort. Um, and two, the you know, once the person has paid 40, 50 bucks for the game, they'll wait to download it, you know, however long it takes, because at that point they've already put the money down. Um, And the the biggest thing, honestly, is we were competing against some very established industry players like Steam is the biggest one, also Amazon, where they have, you know, huge audiences, huge libraries of catalogs, great discounts, et cetera. And um, it was really difficult to like rebuild that whole business when what we had was just this one piece of technology. So I pivoted the business with the founder to uh, B2B. And my insight there was there were these um, large free, it's called a free to play business model, um, especially for MMORPGs, massively multiplayer online role-playing games, like World mm-hmm. of Warcraft type games. And the business model behind these games was You can download it and start playing it for free. In fact, you can play it indefinitely for free. But when you want the sword of power or the bow of justice, you have to um, pay a few dollars for those things. And they get kind of upsell people once they get really into the game. And those 
game makers, they are spending ad money to try to get people to download the game. They want people to get into the game, get into it. And people haven't paid for the game. So they're not really willing to wait eight hours to download the game. And, you know, the graphics are really important and you can't have good graphics without a large download size. Mm. So um, I realized we had a really good value proposition to those publishers where we can say we can basically improve your marketing conversion funnel of getting people into the game. We were able to prove that out in AB tests and that's how we won the contract with Warner Brothers. Was it their um, local studio, I, the the uh, the turbine? Yeah, it was uh, turbine. Yeah, yeah. And would they turbine, have Lord of the uh, Rings? Was there? What was there? Yeah. Franchise? So yeah, we powered oh. the downloads for Lord of the Rings and Dungeons and Dragons online for a while, um, and um, I, yeah, I played that game so many times just for work reasons. <laughs> um, and another lesson I learned from Happy Cloud was. Um, we saw um, competitor companies to us um, that were like the business model didn't make as much sense. The technology didn't make as much sense, but it was a little bit flashier than ours. And they raised hundreds of millions of dollars. One of them even sold to Sony for hundreds of millions of dollars and then became a flop after it was sold. Um, and when I looked at kind of what were these companies doing differently than us that led to them at least being able to raise all this money, if not being ultimately successful, is they had um, experienced leaders at the helm of the company who came from the video game industry and really knew the industry inside and out and came with a very strong reputation. So everyone would take their calls. And people also kind of like trusted that like whatever they were doing would be really successful because they've been successful in the past. And at Happy Cloud, um, I you know was fresh out of college, so I didn't have that kind of reputation. Um, and the founder, he was a successful entrepreneur in other areas, but this was his first company in the video game industry. And you know, each industry is very insular in its own way. Um, and so that was something that kind of um, hampered our growth and development. And so I decided like my next company I need to partner with someone who is deep insider expert. And when did you start uh, your MBA at Harvard Business School? 2013. 2013. Okay. So um, I thought it was interesting because you're like studying entrepreneurial studies and coursework in AI and machine learning, which AI is everywhere right now. Obviously it's having its moment, but I'm like, wow. So you were ahead of the curve as it relates to, I mean, that technology has been around, but for someone to tailor their, you know, MBA studies towards that, I thought was interesting. Yeah. And uh, it was very unusual. I mean, so Harvard Business School, there are a thousand roughly people in each graduating year for the MBA program. And it was me and one other person from my class who cross-registered to take machine learning courses at the Harvard Engineering School. Um, so it wasn't something that was kind of on the radar of uh, most business school students, at least to study from like a technical perspective. I think lots of business school students were interested in like how can AI be used in business, but didn't actually like go to the effort of uh, to take an actual machine learning course. Um, and part of what got me interested in that was um, a got involved in this movement called effective altruism, which is about 
instead of, you know, if altruism is doing good things for the world, effective altruism is about trying to do the most good you can for the world, given limited time, energy, money, resources, et cetera. And um, one of the ideas of the effective altruism movement, which was very prescient, was that AI is going to have a massive transformational impact on society and um, that it's important to get like a deep understanding of it so that we can be kind of like prepared to influence the trajectory of it for better. And I think at the time, um, kind of that focus on AI was viewed as like a little weird or strange because um, AI wasn't such a big thing yet 10 years ago. Um, but it proved to be very prescient because now, you know, everyone is um, excited about AI, concerned about AI, worried about um, existential risks to human society and flourishing from AI and kind of, you know, what happens when the computers become smarter than us. This was something that was being talked about 10 years ago in the effective altruism world. Similarly, um, pandemic preparedness was a big thing in wow. the altruism world, even starting like okay. 10 years ago. And that was another thing that was like kind of weird to talk about. Like, you know, why would you be worried about that? Pandemic, um, wow, and, that's never going to happen. <laughs> yep, and exactly. And uh, a lot of people involved in the Infector Rogers movement got um, really interested and involved in trying to prepare for pandemics. And then we're, you know, super well positioned to help um, deal with things once COVID hit. Um, so, you know, sometimes ideas that, seem really weird right now if they're logical and make sense and there's no like gaping flaw in the argument like 10 years from now could be something that like everyone accepts um and so it's um uh you know it's it's about trying to be ahead of the curve um even when it just is, seems kind of weird but you know if it makes sense it makes sense and you also had a company that you were part of the rock center and the uh, new business venture competition, right? With uh, an MIT professor who's also the founder of Whitricity, which is a really cool company. Yeah, so that's Professor Marvin Solyacic of uh, Applied Physics at MIT. He's brilliant. He's uh, he's actually a genius, like MacArthur Fellow Genius Grant Award recipient. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, he founded Whitricity, which is a wireless electricity company, which is really cool. Um, I remember I saw a demo of their technology where they were powering a TV wirelessly through a human's body. It was like the CEO stood in between the wireless energy transmitter and the TV to prove that it was safe. And that was really cool. I was like, even if I believed in the technology, I don't know if I could do that. Right. Um, but um, so um, Professor Soliachi, he had... Um, invented this technology to do transparent display kind of if you've seen the movie Minority Report where Tom Cruise has like those gloves and there's this like screen floating in midair and he's like you know moving his hands everything's changing on the screen um, super futuristic and cool looking he developed a prototype using nanoparticles um, that could uh, do something like that um, which is just so cool so I spent a summer um, funded by the HBS Rock Center to help him kind of evaluate what would commercialization look like and evaluate potential business models and markets to enter. Um, at the time, it seemed like the best um, uh, kind of opportunity for it 
was to do kind of retail advertising in store windows. Um, you know, sometimes stores you know, like fast food places will put like a poster up in the window, but then that locks people's view into the store. And people's view into the store is a really important thing that draws people's attention, gets them uh, foot traffic from people walking by. So with a transparent display, you can really catch someone's eye and market to them in a way that you know other companies aren't doing. And that seemed like a really interesting market, but the technology was still really early, wasn't quite ready for prime time. Um, they did eventually spin it out into a company, I think it was called um, Lux Labs, um, and got a little bit of traction. But I don't think it got that far, but I think it's probably just due to the technology still being really early. I think, you know, eventually the technology could be pretty amazing and stunning, but it's hard to tell with these kind of research-based projects how long it will take before it overcomes all the barriers to practical implementation at scale. Yeah, and I think it's only a matter of time before Whitricity is in everybody's garage with, you know, charge battery charging of electric vehicles. So um, that's a really super cool company that should be on everyone's radar. It's a local Boston company. So, all right, well, let's talk about Dynamicare. So what, what's what's the background story and what do you, what do you do? Sure. So at the time I was graduating business school in 2015, I was seeing friends and family members go through addiction, rehab, relapse, eventually recovery, luckily. And one friend of mine, um, she um, was around my age, uh, early 30s, um, was suffering with an opioid addiction. And she um, got into such a bad place that she was completely dependent on her parents for financial support and living with them. Um, she had been a nurse and, you know, nurses and doctors have easy access to opioids, um, which, you know, creates risks because they can get addicted very easily. And um, she uh, was dependent on her parents, but they didn't trust her because of you know, the history of relapses. And so in order for her to continue receiving their support, they would make her do urine tests in the bathroom, the door open and her dad standing outside. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine how degrading that must've felt for both of yeah. them, right? Um, so I thought there has to be a better way of dealing with this problem of addiction. And um, I said, uh, my, my father happens to be a national expert in addiction psychiatry. He used to run addiction research at uh, Mass General Hospital, taught at Harvard Medical School for many years, was a VP of a biotech company called Alchemuse based in Waltham, Massachusetts. And um, I said to him, you know, people go through rehab over and over again. Seems like the treatments in your field of addiction psychiatry don't actually work, do they? Right. <laughs> and yeah. he kind of chuckled and said, well, actually we do have effective evidence-based treatments that work in study after study. It's just that no one ever uses them in treatment. And I was like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And that started a conversation on what are the evidence-based practices? What are the barriers to adoption? And how can we overcome it with technology? And 
Um, there is one methodology in particular that got me really excited, which is this um, methodology, we call it the secret weapon of addiction research. Um, it's called contingency management is the technical term for it, but it's basically motivational incentives, rewarding people for staying sober and staying engaged in treatment. And um, you know, each time a patient shows up to treatment, passes a negative drug screen, they earn some kind of positive reinforcement um, or financial incentive for that. And consistently at least doubles quit rates. Um, and I was just blown away that there's this thing that works that no one's doing. And I thought we can automate that through technology. It doesn't require a doctor's license, doesn't require highly trained psychoanalyst. Um, this is very like simple mechanical. Going back to my roots of the video game industry, this is just gamification applied mm -hmm. to addiction recovery. And thinking about kind of my experience working on effective altruism, I thought, you know, this aligns really well with the effective altruist mindset and values, which is um, we want to look for big problems in the world. And um, it has to be kind of neglected that, you know, other people aren't already working on it, solving it. And there has to be an actual solution for it um, so that you can have a huge impact by, you know, stepping in and doing the thing that others aren't doing that can solve a big problem. And this fit very neatly with that kind of frame set and values, and especially on the part of having real solid evidence. There are over a hundred randomized controlled trials, which is the highest quality kind of study on this contingency management motivational incentives methodology showing that it works. So it was really just mind blowing that it hadn't been adopted yet. And I thought, you know, I can apply my tech entrepreneur and video game industry gamification skills to this problem. And one of the first ideas we came up with was thinking about, you know, how does an app or a computer know if someone's, you know, sober or not? And thinking about the problems that my friend experienced with drug testing. And so we built a system that where we do drug testing through the app using connected devices. So I'll actually show it to you here. Um, yeah. We mail the patient breath and saliva testing devices, and they get an alert in the app at a random time saying, Eric, please do a breath test in the next two hours. And they open up their police grade Bluetooth connected breathalyzer, turn it on and do a selfie video themselves blowing into the breathalyzer. So we get the results automatically over Bluetooth and the video serves as proof that it's really me doing the test. I didn't give it to someone else to do. And if I test negative, I earn rewards on a smart debit card that blocks access to bars, liquor stores, and cash withdrawals. So it's an immediate, effective, safe way of rewarding people, delivering that positive reinforcement to people in recovery. And the breathalyzer, of course, is for alcohol, for opioids, stimulants, other drugs. We do selfie videos of patients doing saliva tests. So they swab their cheek, put the swab in the cup, and show the cup to the camera. It's like a rapid COVID test. Um, so we see the results in the video, whether they tested positive or negative for each substance. And then once they submit the video, they can just throw out the cup. It's disposable. And 
you know, thinking about what my friend went through, this is like a totally revolutionary system of putting the power literally in the hands of the patient where they test themselves, they have that accountability, they have that motivation, the financial support. It's all automated through the technology. If they want to, they can choose to share the results with their um, family, parents, supporters, et cetera. It's totally up to them. And um, it's a system that really works to dramatically improve outcomes. Um, you know, since that original concept of linking the substance test to the rewards on the debit card, we've since built out more features and components. So for example, we built a GPS feature where it checks people into their doctor's appointments, therapy sessions, even Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. They can earn rewards for those. Hmm. We built a library of self-guided therapy lessons, like how to deal with stress, triggers, cravings. They can earn rewards for doing that kind of cognitive behavioral therapy homework. And we also built out a uh, telehealth coaching program so that each patient who's using the dynamic care platform gets matched with one of our coaches and our coaches are in recovery themselves. So they're really able to connect with the member on a human level, add that human touch and help guide them through the program. And I think even most importantly, reach out when there's a risk alert for the patient. So if the, um, we usually we say members, sometimes patients, if the member tests positive or drugs or alcohol, our coach gets an alert, reaches out, says, hey, what's going on? How can we help you? Um, do you need to get back into in-person treatment? Um, you know, work with them to figure out the right care plan. And also similarly, if they're using the debit card, they try to use it at a bar or liquor store, the transaction gets blocked, but we also get the alert and reach out to them about it. So that human component um, has been a big value add um, for the members we work with and our health plan, health system customers. Yeah, I thought that was definitely a key. It's the tech, but it's also the, the human element that uh, helps keep people hopefully staying down the right path. Now, how do you go about you know, um, you know, having people know about this, like your go-to-market, like, is this something that is more word of mouth? Is it through advertising? Is it through physicians? Is it through partnerships? Like what's the, the way you get the word out there about this? Yeah, great question. So um, we, we do offer direct to consumer. It's not a big part of the business, but if you go to dynamiccarehealth.com, you can sign up for a plan. Uh, put down a credit card. Um, we have plan the cheapest plan starts at $20 a week um, for text-based coaching. And then it goes up from there if you add in like the incentives and the remote testing equipment, et cetera. Um, but most of our go-to-market is working within the healthcare system, usually with health plans or government agencies. So we are now an in-network provider with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. So anyone with a commercial BCBSMA plan um, is eligible to use Dynamicare. And you, know, you still have to pay copay or deductibles, but other than that, um, it's covered. And um, we're working with other health plans across the country, including um, Blue Cross Blue Shield New Jersey. Um, and we've been working with some state Medicaid plans. Um, so 
what we usually try to do is get the health plan to cover it, um, then work with addiction treatment providers like, you know, treat rehabs, um, medication assisted treatment programs, et cetera, to make this part of their treatment planning for the patients. So sometimes it's when people are being discharged from detox or rehab, they get offered dynamic care and they refer them to us or as someone is starting an outpatient treatment program. You know, they're getting therapy, they're getting medication from the treatment program, but dynamic care is complementary to that because we're adding the remote testing, the incentives, the coaching, et cetera. Um, and, you know, in order to get health plans to cover it and to get treatment programs to make it part of the patient's treatment plan, it's been really important that we prove that this really works. So we've worked with academic research partners across the country, University of Vermont, Johns Hopkins, um, who and our partners have published eight peer-reviewed studies showing that our system doubles to quadruples quit rates across drugs, alcohol, and tobacco. So that's been another key piece of the strategy is to um, demonstrate that this really works and then you know, use that to justify why health plans should be covering this thing that they haven't traditionally covered, why addiction treatment programs should be integrating it into their practices. And you, like you were talking about some of the research. Um, so you have received some uh, very positive news where you received FDA breakthrough device designation to treat alcohol use disorder, where over 29 million Americans suffer from AUD. So that's a big step forward. Yes, thank you. Um, and so, you know, the, all that work that's gone into the research, we're able to leverage that and um, submit it to organizations or agencies like the FDA um, to get their stamp of approval. And in the case of our product for alcohol use disorder, um, we've received an FDA breakthrough device designation which is you know, basically the FDA saying that what we've developed here is a medical breakthrough for an, a massive public health um, crisis of alcohol use disorder um, that uh, you know, for all the attention that the opioid, use, uh, opioid epidemic gets, alcohol still kills more people every year than opioids. Um, so it's really a huge issue, doesn't get a lot of attention um, but we need more effective treatments, and that's what Dynamic Care is working on developing. We also received um, last year an FDA breakthrough device designation for smoking cessation during pregnancy. So in our pilot study, um, oh, sorry, uh, our pilot study for alcohol use disorder, uh, we doubled the rate of um, verified abstinence. That was a randomized controlled trial we did with Johns Hopkins. Um, and that was done here in Massachusetts at Gosnell on Cape Cod. It's the largest treatment system on Cape Cod. Um, for smoking during pregnancy, we work with University of Vermont. Um, they did a pretty large randomized controlled trial of uh, pregnant smokers across the country and found that dynamic care increased the quit rate uh, by 4x at the end of pregnancy. And that those gains of quitting lasted um, 12 weeks, three months after the incentives in dynamic care ended. So people were actually able to maintain their quit status um, after going through the program. And based on that, we also received an FDA breakthrough device designation. And 
it's important to point out that you know, for um, pregnant women, most drugs are not safe during pregnancy. So there are drugs and medications to help people quit smoking. There's nicotine replacement therapy, um, you know, like the nicotine gum or the patch. There's a drug called Chantix, uh, Wellbutrin, um, but the, none of these drugs are really very safe during pregnancy. So, you know, in a lot of conditions, pregnant women are left with very few options. I think it's a really interesting area and huge potential for digital therapeutics, um, like what Dynamic Care is building to fill a gap in the market and offer um, effective treatments that don't have any risk of side effects to the baby. Um, so we're, we're excited to be working in that market. Well, you've uh, funded the company through uh, raising capital, uh, through equity financing, but you've also funded it through grants and other ways. So it's been, uh, you know, various ways versus just venture capital, right? Um, right. So, so what's the current, you know, the, the the size of the company in terms of the number of employees and kind of what, what are you envisioning in the future? Sure. So we've raised $8 million in equity funding and another $6 million in non-dilutive sources of funding. Um, so it's prizes. We've won like over a million dollars in prize money. Um, NIH grants. So the NIH and other government agencies have a program called SBIR, Small Business Innovation Research Grants. If you want to do R&D, you can apply to the government to fund it. Um, and the only strings attached are that you do the research and hopefully publish it. Um, there's no equity, there's no debt tied to it. So that's a good option that um, some entrepreneurs don't know about. Um, it is a little slow though, because it is government. Um, we also have received a loan from um, the state of Massachusetts. Um, they have, it's called Mass Development Agency. They have an emerging technology fund. That's something that a lot of entrepreneurs don't know about. Um, and uh, you know, obviously that's for Massachusetts, but other states also have um, you know, different programs like that to stimulate economic development within the state. So it's been nice for our investors that almost every dollar I've raised from investors I've been able to match from a non-dilutive source. So the money goes a lot further. And a big part of that is because we're working on a social issue of addiction. You know, we, we are a for-profit company, but we have a social mission we're working on a very important social problem. And so that opens up the doors to a lot more types of funding. Um, in terms of size of the company, um, we're at about a dozen full-time employees plus a bunch of other um, part-time employees and contractors. Oh, and then, sorry, you asked about where, where we're headed next. Um, so our mission is to build evidence-based digital therapeutics that become the standard of care and help millions of people overcome addiction. So for people who are familiar with addiction treatment, there are drugs like Suboxone that's considered a gold standard treatment for opioid use disorder. And um, that's kind of taken for granted now, but it wasn't always like that. When um, some of these drugs first came out, there was a lot, lot of opposition to them. People said, you know, why, you know, treat drug addiction with another drug. It's just replacing one addiction with another. Um, there's all sorts of um, pushback 
that these medications got. Um, the way that they became the standard of care was by um, publishing more and more research showing that these drugs are safe and effective and they improve outcomes. They help people quit. Um, they help people get their lives back. And ultimately they save lives and prevent overdoses. And so now, you know, everyone's behind it and pushing forward on it and it's accepted as the standard of care. And there are whole venture backed businesses really just around prescribing Suboxone and other medications for addiction treatment. So we want to get dynamic care to where it's at the same place. We know that the methodologies we're using, like contingency management, are um, some of the most effective tools in the toolbox of addiction treatment, that they should be part of the standard of care. Um, and they're not there yet for a whole bunch of different reasons. Some of it is pushback around why do incentives, why should people make money for this? Um, some of it is regulatory. Um, you know, is it a kickback to a patient if the you know they're getting money from the treatment provider? Um, some of it is uh, you know uh, just the inertia in the healthcare system. You know, what's the billing code that you use for this, et cetera? So we're trying to break through each of those barriers one by one and get this methodology and this product, um, dynamic care, um, into hopefully millions of people's hands, which is where it should be. Well, the timing of this podcast is interesting because the largest player, I guess, like your largest competitor, Paratherapeutics, just declared bankruptcy. I think it was Friday. Um, yeah. Now, the reason why I was asking you the questions about you know your how you funded the company, it's a very different approach than what another company has done from raising hundreds of millions of dollars at a very large valuation. I don't know what their staff was in terms of the team. And then they went public through a SPAC. So not saying one way is the right way versus the other, but uh, you took a very different approach. So like, wh what does that mean when a company in your industry goes bankrupt? Yeah, it's complicated. So you know, Dynamic Air, we took a very different approach, which is we raised, you know, a million dollars at first at a modest valuation. We accomplished a lot with that million and then raised another round at a slightly higher valuation, kind of gradually raised more money as we proved out and de-risked various aspects of the business model. Um, so with Pair Therapeutics, they raised enormous amounts. They, I think overall they raised $400 million dollars. Um, in combination of equity and debt. Um, and they raised this before they had real revenue. They um, did an IPO via SPAC um, last year at uh, over a billion dollar valuation when they had 4 million in revenue wow. the previous year. Yeah. So really getting ahead of their skis a bit. Um, but in terms of how, and, and now it's, um, crashing down, they had to lay off over 90% of the staff and declare bankruptcy because they had taken on all this debt um, and you know had these huge investor expectations that were really difficult to fulfill in order to be able to raise the next round. So in terms of how it affects the industry, um, you know, on the one hand, it is not good for an industry when a pioneer falls. Um, so that's 
you know, big, it's going to be for a while, I think, a um, black eye for the digital therapeutics industry, something that they'll, um, or they slash we will struggle with. Um, on the, you know, it hurts investor confidence in the market, et cetera. Um, on the other hand, you know, for us, um, you know, with paratherapeutics being a competitor, it also creates new opportunities for us um, to kind of step in and fill the gap left behind by a competitor exiting the market. Um, so it's, you know, a bit of a balance of those things. But overall, I would say, you know, it's unfortunate that Pair didn't work out um, because I think that their product could have helped a lot of people. Um, obviously, you know, I believe in Dynamicare's products. I think we offer a lot of big advantages over Pair's products, but um, it's still sad to see that it didn't get the um, uptake and adoption that um, it could have gotten or perhaps deserved. But, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. Now, you talked about some of your lessons learned from uh, Happy Cloud. So what have been some of the lessons learned since launching Dynamicare? Oh, a lot. So one lesson I mentioned I learned from Happy Cloud was the importance of having an industry insider and expert. Um, and that I you know, really took to heart. And um, that's why I started Dynamicare with my father, Dr. David Gasfriend, um, as my co-founder. And he's my chief medical officer. So um, he's very well-known expert in the field, and he's really been able to guide us through the industry um, to make sure we make the right decisions, um, to guide our product development, our clinical team, our research. Um, and he's very well-respected in the field, and that opens up a lot of doors for us um, that otherwise would not be open. So um, that's been really great. And... Um, in terms of new things I've learned since starting Dynamicare, um, I, I think there are yeah, there are a lot. One is I think we tried to do a lot with the product from the beginning um, with all these different features. Um, you know, we were doing the testing, the incentives, the GPS tracking, um, coaching, et cetera. Um, it may have been better to focus on, let's say, like, getting really good at remote drug testing, figuring out how to offer that as a product and service, and then more gradually adding on more things. Um, but, you know, obviously it's hard to say like how that would have turned out. Um, but I think I was maybe, you know, like I'm a big thinker and um, like, you know, wanting to be visionary and probably a lot of entrepreneurs are like that, but sometimes it can be better to um, be a little bit more kind of like step-by-step -step and, cautious to validate each different component before taking on too much. Um, I think another big lesson for me, um, I didn't really understand much about healthcare, having come from the video game industry. And the healthcare industry works very different from the video game industry, to say the least. There is a lot of um, inertia in the healthcare system. I thought that the U.S., uh, I, I thought that, you know, the health plans decide what to cover, what not to cover um, in the U.S. healthcare system that, you know, the decision makers at the health plans are really in control of the system. And, you know, to a certain extent, they have a lot of power within the system, but I didn't realize how complex it is. Um, a health plan um, 
doesn't really have full control over what to cover because they have their own customers that they need to serve, often it's large self-insured employers for the commercial market or it's states for the Medicaid market. And often they need the their customers, like the employer of the state's permission or blessing or contract amendment to be able to offer something different than what they've traditionally done, especially when it's something innovative like uh, digital therapeutic. Um, also, they need to process everything through billing codes and they don't set the billing codes themselves. The billing codes are set only by two organizations, the American Medical Association and the federal government Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So that you know is something that's outside of their control. There's some leeway they have in doing miscellaneous billing codes, but it gets complicated. Um, and then also, of course, it's a highly regulated industry. And then even if a payer decides to cover something, that doesn't mean that they can get the patients and the providers to use it. The providers are independent. Um, they choose what to refer the patients to or prescribe to the patients. Um, and then, of course, you know, you need the patient to be bought into it. Luckily for us, it's easy to get the patient because there's financial incentives involved. Um, but, you know, I didn't understand really like the layers of complexity in the healthcare market and the kind of barriers to entry that make innovation difficult. And, you know, I think that's one of the things we saw with Pair is they ran into a lot of barriers by being a new category. They positioned themselves as a biotech, as you know, as if they were making drugs that were FDA approved. But, you know, to a health plan, to a provider, it's not a drug. It's something new. It's something different. They don't know how to contract for it, how to pay for it. Um, the, you know, the doctors, they didn't learn about this in medical school, um, so they have to wrap their heads around it. Um, and it takes a lot of effort to create change in the healthcare industry. That's why you see often like the technology in the healthcare industry is lagging like 10, 20 years behind where it is in you know, consumer electronics or retail, other areas that are less regulated and less complex. So what are three apps you can't live without? Hmm. Audible, I'd say is number one. Mm -hmm. I love audiobooks and it's such a great way to learn new things. Um, I uh, finished a book recently um, that I really enjoyed called, or really learned a lot from. It's called Bury the Chains and it's about the history of the slave trade abolition movement in the um, Great Britain. And um, it's, you know, just shed so much light on the abolition of slavery. And um, the interesting case that the book makes is that the abolition of slavery was by no means inevitable. Slavery has existed in human society for thousands of years everywhere around the world. And it only got, you know, abolished in this case due to these kind of unique circumstances that then led it to spread around the world. And so it's really interesting to think about like how history could have gone differently and the importance of trying to make a change. And I think I see entrepreneurship in that light of trying to you know, change the way that things are done in an industry um, or um, in some area um, hopefully for the better. I, I guess I'll, you asked for three apps. I only gave one, but I gave really long answers. So. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I, Audible is fantastic. I don't know. I think it was like a year ago. I finally just, it's not that I didn't know the app existed. I just finally started using it. And I just, yeah, it's, and it's just, I, uh, I find it just be very therapeutic just because of the, the, the tone of the reader typically is just, you know, it's soothing and, you know, learning and it's just, um, yeah, no, it's, it's something that I use a ton of, uh, as well. So what do you like to do for fun outside of work? Um, let's see. Um, I'm, I'm a new father. I've got a seven month old. So, Congrats. um, so my, Thank you. So my hobbies have uh, taken a bit of a hiatus recently, but yeah. and I love spending time with my daughter. So that's really fun. Um, but uh, historically, um, I love languages. Um, so um, learning new languages um, and um, even working on uh, kind of trying to design my own language just for fun. Um, it's a big hobby of mine. And then um, <laughs> wow so I, i'm shaking my head I'm like hobby. you're doing <laughs> what you're creating your own language uh, for fun that is awesome <laughs> like wow yeah i mean it's, it's not super useful but it is a uh, fun kind of like world building activity you know like J.R.R. tolkien created his own language for sure rings and um well yeah like those, doesn't um vulcans don't they have a language that people have kind of yeah developed? yeah star, uh, uh, star, star trek vulcans it's yeah. a language um so um that's just kind of fun and interesting and then um i love uh skiing i love karaoke that's like my goofy side um i happen to be the third best thai karaoke singer in boston at least for the year 2012 when i won third place in the boston thai karaoke championship so that was a combination what, kind of, of what? my passion what kind for of languages because Thai, like Thailand. Thai. So wow. I, I okay. speak like basic conversational Thai. And so I right. can sing in Thai. And I love karaoke. So I and I was the only white person to enter the Boston Thai karaoke contest in 2012. <laughs> and um, third. I don't know if it was um like you know just a consolation prize or something, but they gave me third place. So very uh proud of that. <laughs> well, I was gonna say what's your go-to karaoke song, but I guess I probably wouldn't know the songs you were singing. You know, usually be not like for talk, but, uh, for English. Uh, I think my favorite one is uh, "New York State of Mind" by Billy Joel. Ah, uh, that's a great one. That's fantastic. It's a good crowd pleaser. Yeah. Or uh, yep. "Don't Stop Me Now" by Queen. That's even better. Crowd pleaser. It's more yeah. upbeat. Yep. Very cool. Well, Eric, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Obviously, all the the great work you guys are doing with Dynamic Air, and obviously, all the great advice. Thanks so much, Keith. And I just want to say I really appreciate all the work that you're doing for the tech community in terms of sharing stories, being a kind of meeting point um, for all the different things going on in the tech industry. So thank you for having me on here for the work you're doing. Well, thanks for your support. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.